The Fanboy, episode 89. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 89 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I gotta tell you, it has been a sensational week for yours truly. A real rebound from last week and all the fallout of everything that happened with my Army Hammer Batman story, which, by the way, I'm still all about. I'm still, that's a hill I'm gonna die on, and maybe I will die on it, but I'm gonna die on it. So, uh, you know, last week was filled with drama and upheaval and big questions and a lot of anxiety, whereas this week was just a breeze. This week was beautiful. This week was a week to kind of just like celebrate what an awesome following I've cultivated and how big sort of Revenge of the Fans is getting. Our traffic, you know, our average numbers have nearly doubled since at this point last year. And even like towards the end of uh, of, of our first year, we're already way past that. So the site's doing great. We got a bunch of new patrons, by the way, over on Patreon. And that's really cool because I've been putting a lot of extra effort into that these last few weeks. We've been trying to work on creating some really cool content for you. So for this week, for example, we released uh, over from the Revengers podcast, but it's all part of the Revenge of the Fans Patreon campaign. We released an audio commentary track for Solo, a Star Wars story that was so much fun to record that now we want to do one of these audio commentaries like every month. And we've got a poll up currently on Patreon for which Batman movie you'd like us to do. Because I was thinking for the next one, you know, we chose Solo because it's a great sort of inside joke. We spoke about Solo a lot last year. We got a catchphrase out of it. Um, so, you know, we, we chose the first one. We want you to choose the next one. So there's a poll, and since this is the year that Batman turns 80, we thought, you know what? Let's throw all eight Batman movies onto a poll and let our listeners and readers decide which one we should do an audio commentary track for. And at present... Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is running away with the poll. Now, you guys have a couple more days to go over there and, you know, make your voices heard. But on Monday night, when we record the next episode of The Revengers, we'll be announcing which film. And right now, it's looking like it's going to be BVS. And if it is BVS, not only are we going to do a commentary track for it, but we're going to do a commentary track for the Ultimate Edition, the three-hour Mamma Jamma. You know, both Brett and I own that. I don't be- I don't believe Vanessa has ever seen the Ultimate Edition, so it'd be a first time for her. And I know Brett and I both agree that the Ultimate Edition is vastly superior to the, to the theatrical cut. So I'm kind of excited to to explore that. I've only seen it one time. I saw it as part of my Zack Snyder DCEU rewatch preparing for Justice League. So that was what? That was the week of November... 13th 2017 so it's been a while so if that does end up winning cool i'm looking forward to diving back into the ultimate edition 
Uh, but there's still time, folks. We have all four of the original Batman films. We've also got all three Christopher Nolan Batman movies. So we have eight different Batman titles. If you want to hear us record a commentary track on it, really just kind of have fun celebrating it, tearing it down. If you wanted to just feel like we're sitting there on the couch with you watching one of your favorite films, you know, that's what we plan on doing for you. So go ahead and vote and make your voice be heard. Something else that we dropped on the Patreon today, exclusively, not today, this week, I should say, is like I put the almost, I, I put like 95% of the cast of Jay and Silent Bob's reboot up on the uh, on the Patreon, just for fun. I didn't feel like blowing it on the site because I know Kevin Smith has been, yeah, I don't want to be the guy who leaks his stuff. I want you, know, he, he seems to have a way that he wants you guys to find out about this information. I know that Saban, Saban, whoever's producing it, they've also been very careful about how the cast has been getting out for this film. So I figured if I put it out on the site, then it's going to all spread incredibly quickly. But if I release it on Patreon to just my cool kids, my hardcore followers, the people committed enough to donate a few bucks a month, you know, I can probably trust that they'll take this information in, they'll, you know, hold on to it themselves, and we'll kind of leave it there. But that was something I experimented, I experimented this week on with the Patreon, basically putting a scoop there instead of on the site. So folks this week have gotten an audio commentary track. They've got an exclusive scoop about a Kevin Smith project. They've gotten some other bochinche along the way, which you guys can definitely go check out if you haven't yet and you're thinking of signing up for the Patreon. So it's really, you know, it, it's been great because we, we've gotten, I think about a month ago when we relaunched the Patreon, we had like, you know, a third of the patrons we have now. We've literally tripled, we've more than tripled our amount of patrons in the last month, month and a half. So that's huge. And I want to thank you all for your support. And also just, you know, I also got some additional intel this week about the Army Hammer stuff that, you know, there's nothing necessarily shareable, but just it makes me more than, you know, all the more confident about standing on this hill and waiting to see how this whole thing plays out because uh, I think I know who the next Batman is, y'all. Uh, but now that we kind of got the housekeeping out of the way and we talked about the good, you know, the, the, what a great rebound week this has been and how cool the Patreon stuff is coming together, let's go ahead and get into what today's episode is about, shall we? So I'm going to start by saying a phrase that very few people have been willing to say, and that phrase is, Warner Brothers deserves a lot of credit. And I know that that's a weird thing to say, right? Because especially on this podcast and for the types of things that we discuss, you know, whether you loved the initial leg of the DCEU, whether you hated the initial leg of the DCEU, you can all agree that you have a big gripe with Warner Brothers. Whether it's for the fact that they okayed those films to come out the way they did, or the fact that they did what they did to some of those films in post-production, there's a reason that you've got an axe to grind with Warner Brothers. So again, whether you're for the first DC films, whether you're against the first DC films, Warner Brothers has kind of been on your, uh, on your naughty list for the last several years. But this week they released the trailer for Detective Pikachu. And something became crystal clear to me that I don't think enough people are looking at, are giving enough credit to, or really talking about. And that's the way that Warner Brothers has been incredibly bold 
incredibly ambitious and incredibly visionary with their plans for all of their big four quadrant blockbuster properties. Because listen, folks, you got to understand over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, you know, theater going has gone down. Movie going has gone down. And that's one of the reasons that Hollywood seems to be so you know, devoid of creativity. We always say, oh, they've run out of ideas. Now they're remaking this, or now they're making a movie about a viewfinder, or now they're going to do a... You know, we love to harp on them for the amount of sequels, reboots, remakes, all of the sameness of a lot of these franchises. But you got to understand, Hollywood kind of had no choice because now that television has become really competitive... And now that people's home entertainment systems and their surround sound and their big screens and their smart TVs, you know, now that they've made it so that watching a movie from the comfort at home totally sort of mops the floor with going to a theater for certain types of films, you know, the studios realize the only way we're going to entice people to come to theaters are with big time properties, big time blockbuster tentpole movies that people have an attachment to because that will get them to want to go experience it on the big screen and go do all that thing. But smaller, more intimate, more original, more off the beaten path fare is probably best for television or for a limited run or for, you know, it's just, that's kind of what's gone on. And, and that's why studios have become increasingly more dependent on established IPs, on in intellectual properties that already have an existing fan base and can therefore entice that fan base to come out to a theater with minimal pulling of teeth. You know what I mean? So that's why all these different studios have been trying to basically dust off anything that has a built-in audience to try to get you out to theaters because they know the only way we're going to get you anymore is by appealing to your emotions, by appealing to your nostalgia, and by promising a larger-than-life experience that cannot be replicated on your television at home. So studios know all this stuff. And Warner Brothers, you can tell if you go back to like 2014 when like the Lego movie came out, I see, let me, let me make sure I'm going to pause just to make sure I'm not talking completely out of my butt here. Yep. The Lego movie came out in 2014. So with that in mind, if you look at all of Warner Brothers, big time four quadrant intellectual properties, they've kind of swung for the fences creatively on all of them. And Detective Pikachu kind of made that point very clear this week when you look at the approach to that film and the fact that it's not just a simple adaptation of Pokemon. They could have done a movie that was much more straight up. Here's the story of Ash, a boy who's a Pokemon collector, and you know, we're going to adapt one of the stories from one of the seasons of television. You know, they, they could have gone for the sort of safe, straightforward approach, but instead they chose the Detective Pikachu sort of spin-off of the main Pokemon franchise, and they've crafted a film that looks very almost like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, kind of, you know, almost, you know, it, it kind of spins on its head what the mainstream audience member thinks of the Pokemon franchise. It's meant to make you kind of stop you in your tracks and go, what is this? I didn't, I didn't know that Pokemon could be this way. And that, I don't know, that, that vision, that approach is actually evident all over the place at Warner Brothers. So let's talk about it. 
The Lego movie was a big hit when it came out in 2014. And meanwhile, what made that movie work was how sort of quirky and unique and different it was. It was sort of meta in, in the way that it sort of broke the fourth wall. It sort of commented on itself. It was one of those movies that, yes, the kids can go and enjoy it for all of the action and the fact that it's a bunch of action figures and it's toys and it's colorful, but adults could get something out of it because there was some humor in there that kind of only really spoke to us. And it was a really sort of subversive way of looking at you know, what the Legos have meant to generations upon generations of using their imaginations to run wild and, you know, Will Ferrell as the big grown-up man-baby with his big Lego collection in the basement. Like, you know, it was just, it was a unique way to approach the property. They could have gone some other very just sort of straightforward way with it, but they went a way that's very kind of, it spoke to everyone. It kind of twisted your expectations for what a movie about Legos would be. And then that is kind of carried through, th through several things. Because, you know, while everyone talks about the DC stuff, like Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad and all of the ways in which Zack and Deborah Snyder and Chris Terrio and all of them were intent on sort of, you know, sort of deconstructing these characters and making you look at these beloved pop culture figures like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman differently to make you just like with just like with Detective Pikachu, just like with Lego Man, that makes you kind of stop and go, huh, I never really looked at them looked at them that way. You know, while Warner Brothers while DC gets all the attention for that approach, they did it with Lego movie. They also did it even like with King Arthur. If you remember the Charlie Hunnam King Arthur movie, that was not your daddy's King Arthur movie. That was an insane, I, I, like I haven't seen it, but you could tell from the trailers with the mythical beasts and really leading into the fantastical elements and it's a Guy Ritchie thing. You know, again, it was not just a paint my numbers, straightforward, you know, King Arthur adaptation. It was, this was not some run of the mill revisit of the Excalibur myth. This was a whole new bold attempt to make you look at King Arthur fundamentally different. So now, you know, are you keeping track? The Lego movie was a different animal. The King Arthur movie was a different animal. The DC films were very different animals, and then they kind of had to adjust on the fly. But again, they were trying to sort of tweak your expectations, and they were giving their filmmakers, at least initially, the freedom to make people rethink these classic characters. Then you have what's going on now with the Pikachu stuff and the Pokemon and the way they're sort of making you look differently at the Pokemon franchise. And even what's going on with the Harry Potter world. If you look at Fantastic Beasts, you know, they, they really are trying to not just give you more of the Harry Potter stuff. You know, even though the, the films have really become more of a Harry Potter prequel series than I would have liked, you can't argue that they're not trying to expand that world, that they're not afraid to take risks. You know, there, there's some stuff that I know Matt Vernier, who writes for, for us at Revenge of the Fans, you know, he was very upset with how Fantastic Beasts 2 went because it apparently sort of spat in the face of some of the canon from the Harry Potter lore. And it kind of, you know, it, it kind of went in a slightly altered, you know, it kind of altered the history that we've already been told. But again, that all speaks to the fact that Warner Brothers is trying to kind of break the mold. They're trying to kind of like, we're not going to do exactly what you expect. And to me, that deserves credit. 
And that's kind of when you know, I, I just gave you this whole recap, this whole little sort of history lesson to arrive at this point that Warner Brothers deserves a ton of credit for being willing to take these kinds of risks. For, for, they, they deserve credit for looking at these tried and true safe properties and going, well, what's the riskiest way we can do this? What's a way that we can do that will surprise audiences? Because, you know, there are other studios out there that just give you kind of exactly what you'd expect. You know what I mean? They don't necessarily try to subvert your expectations. They don't necessarily try to make you look at things differently. They just go, hey, you love this thing? Here's more of this thing you love. Whereas Warner Brothers, you could tell they want it to be the studio that kind of puts a twist on what you've come to know and love. And I, for one, find that, you know, I appreciate that, you know, and, and it's funny because I think it's a fundamental, you know, philosophy across all businesses, not just Hollywood studios, not just, you know, with film franchises or whatever. I think it's sort of a fundamental thing where you have to try to think one step ahead. You have to anticipate what your audience or what your customers may want next. If you wait for them to reject your product before you change it, then it's going to be that much harder to bring them back. You know what I mean? If you're, if you're providing a certain service or a certain product and you just wait until your client base has said, ugh. We're sick of this. We don't want this anymore. We're going to go elsewhere. Now your job is that much harder. It's that much harder to win them back because now you've betrayed their trust. Now you, you, you started them off on something they were excited about. And now you've, you know, you, you've withered away their trust and they've lost faith in your ability to keep that going. But if you're trying to think one step ahead, it doesn't always work out, mind you. But it's a way to make sure that you don't lose them and that you actually, you know, you keep them. You know, it, it, it sounds silly and sort of simplistic, but, you know, even in, in, even in my world, even in, you know, at my day job as a DJ, I'll give you a perfect example. I know you're going to be like, what? what does DJing have to do with any of this? But, you know, he, this philosophy is sort of universal. So, like, when I'm DJing a set at a wedding, right? I have to try to think one step ahead of my crowd. So if I have them all dancing to a particular kind of music, I can't just play that kind of music until the floor is empty. Because, you know, that always inevitably happens. People get tired. People get bored of the same type of music for too long. You know, eventually, if I just play the same thing, I'm going to end up with that one straggler on the dance floor. And now I'm the guy who kind of killed the party. You know, so it's my responsibility to see my clients, to see my guests on the dance floor dancing and to monitor their reactions to go, OK, is the energy building? Has it begun to wane? OK, if it's starting to wane, how what can I do now? What risk can I take that will surprise them and keep them? And it's a risk. Because, like, let's say, for example, I'm doing a set right now. I'm, I'm, I'm DJing. Let's say it's all the current hip-hop stuff, all the stuff that everyone loves right now, right? And I have all the 20-somethings on the dance floor, and they're having the time of their lives. But I look over, and there's several tables of, let's say, the bride and groom's aunts and uncles and parents, the people who are in their 50s and 60s who aren't enjoying this. Listen, I don't have to cater to them, and I, I, I may be thinking, okay, I'll get to them later. But if I notice that my 20-somethings 
are starting to sort of wither away and, and they're starting to disappear into the corners to take selfies with each other or go to the bar or do their thing. Now it behooves me to go, you know what? Now it's time to do a sharp left turn. Now let's say I want to go into some 80s right now. And it's a risk because I'm going to risk losing all those 20-somethings. But I know that right now those other tables are probably going to come up if they hear something familiar to them. So I, as the person who's in charge for all this energy, who has 200 guests to try to entertain and who's been entrusted with giving my couple you know, the most epic night ever, it's up to me to put on my big boy pants, take a risk and go, all right, you know what? We're going to do a sort of abrupt change. We're going to do a little record scratch. We're going to go into some vintage 80s. We're going to get some Whitney Houston and some like golden era Michael Jackson off the wall type stuff. And we're going to go for it and we're going to see what happens. And, and a lot of the times, I mean, now this is going to sound like a humble brag, so I'm going to kind of skim through it. But a lot of the times it works. A lot of times what ends up happening is, yes, it seemed like a risk, but now all the 50s and 60s somethings, they come up because they know this music and they love this music from 30 years ago. And then the 20 somethings, they love it because now they have like a nostalgic appreciation for the 80s stuff and they want to sing along to I Want to Dance with Somebody. And they want to do the moonwalk and pretend to be Michael Jackson and have fun and they've got a good sense of humor about it. So all of a sudden, I took this big risk. I went from playing Drake to playing, you know, like, aha, take on me. And all of a sudden I look and I have all my 20 somethings dancing, having fun. And I see all these other tables coming to join them. And now I have all these generations enjoying music together. And that wouldn't have happened if I would have waited for my initial crowd to die down. So that's why I say, even in my world, I understand the benefits of trying to think a step ahead. And mind you, it doesn't always work. Because there are times where I'll try to do something like, like that, an abrupt switch, kind of, you know, go, now let's dig back into some oldies or let's do something totally different because I really want to, sh you know, shock their system. And sometimes I do pull what we call a DJ Moses, you know, where I, I part the Red Seas of the dance floor and everyone goes running for their tables. It happens from time to time. And I kind of think that's, unfortunately... What's happened to Warner Brothers a lot of the step of the way here. So that's why while I am complimenting them for their boldness, it is important to also see what the public is telling them. Because by and large, a lot of these risks have not panned out. Doesn't mean they don't deserve credit for taking them, but they have not necessarily panned out. You know, as we can see already, the Lego franchise is nowhere near the monolith they thought it would be. So it, now it's looking more and more like that first film was, you know, its success was more of a fluke because none of the other films have come close to necessarily, you know, having lightning strike twice. And on the contrary, as of earlier this week, the Lego Movie 2 is trailing $100 million behind the first Lego Movie at this same time during its run. Audiences have pretty much kind of checked out, by and large, from the Lego franchise. I don't even need to recap what's happening, what's happened with the DCEU and all the different changes and the way, you know, the audience response forced them to have to think on their feet and change things around. I don't have to remind you that King Arthur, while very bold and very visionary and very worth commending, fell flat on its face and bombed hard. It was one of the bigger flops of the year that it came out. 
then Fantastic Beasts, same thing. Fantastic Beasts 2, listen, it did okay, and they're going to keep going. And right now, they're working very hard to make Fantastic Beasts 3. But even they've had to acknowledge, we need to make a better sequel because you guys didn't like Fantastic Beasts 2. So it, it's very interesting to see that on the one hand, it's really cool that Warner Brothers has taken all of these properties and, and challenged you to look at them differently and were bold enough to give you something that was different and fresh and subversive and not just some safe corporate product that they hope you, you know, lap up. No, they didn't, you know, yes, they did that. But the flip side of that is that the American public apparently, at least at this point, things are cyclical, things change. But right now, the current pop culture landscape doesn't seem to want you to spin these things on their head. And that's where, you know, th this is market research. You know, the, the Warner Brothers is conducting large scale market research every time they release one of these movies. You know, so they take these risks and they have to see what the audiences think. And so far, if you really look at the way they've reacted to a few of these, you know, big blockbuster Warner Brothers properties these last few years, it looks like people are not really feeling the risk thing right now. They want what they want, how they want it, the way they know it. And that's why I think Warner Brothers has had to sort of pivot with certain things. And it's going to be interesting to see how Detective Pikachu does. I'm, by the way, I, I'm totally confident that it should do fine. I think it looks really good. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see because, again, it's not necessarily the most traditional take or the most mainstream take on Pokemon. So it's going to be interesting to see how people take to that because people think it's an instant billion-dollar movie because it's Pokemon. It's got a bunch of big-name stars in it, which, by the way, that was another cool thing that happened this week. I had, a, you know, I had a scoop confirmed about Rob Delaney, who apparently gave an interview with the Radio Times where he confirmed that he is indeed in Detective Pikachu. So, you know, it was a very good week. But I digress. You know, all this stuff with Warner Brothers and the risks they take, you know, I just want to, again, give them credit for doing so, but point out that audiences apparently are not feeling that right now. And while, you know, while we're talking about Warner Brothers and DC, you know, there's some pretty cool stuff to talk about this week. There are some updates on big projects, so let's go ahead and kind of touch on some of the current events in the worlds of DC or the DCEU or the DC Universe or DC on film or whatever you want to call it. It's been a pretty good week if you're a fan of DC on film. So let's kind of recap a little bit, shall we? Because what has been one of the big question marks this week, or actually for several weeks, if not several months, the big question mark has been The Flash. Because if you recall, you know, there was supposed to be movement on that. There was supposed to be, you know, at one point last year, they were talking about filming this spring. And casting announcements were expected to start dropping in the fall. I mean, the casting process was kind of beginning there in August, September, and then everything just kind of grinded to a halt. And people have been asking me for a while, what does this mean? What does this mean? And look, I can't, I don't know why it's taken so long to get the flash going, but I keep telling people, just be patient. I don't think it's going anywhere. Just, you, you just gotta hang on. They're working on getting this thing right. And when they do, it's gonna be a big deal. And this week, that seems to be what we're discovering because it is not gone. 
But the Flash film has not disappeared, even though it's apparently, instead of filming this year, it's probably not going to film until next year at the, at the earliest, when Ezra Miller has completed his work on Fantastic Beasts 3. But there has been definitive movement on the film. You know, if you read the latest reporting, the reporting on it from Deadline, which is basically a trade, which is, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's coming up on high. If Deadline reports it, chances are it comes directly from the studio. Not only does the film have a new producer in Mr. Michael Disco, who, by the way, continues the trend of people coming from New Line firmly into Warner Brothers now, um... Not only did they get Michael Disco now as a producer on the film, but they also confirmed that John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldman are not just directing it, but also writing it. And that's a big deal because, you know, they've kind of been all over the place. Sometimes they direct as a duo, sometimes they write as a duo, but, you know, and, and the results can vary. But I was hoping that they were doing both because based on their last two projects, they're very good at doing both. They didn't do them at the same time, mind you. So this would be the, you know, I, I hope that they can do both at the same time. But if you look at the last two projects they were a part of, they directed Game Night, which I thought was really great, really funny, really inventive, and just a really well-made comedy for grown-ups. And they also wrote Spider-Man Homecoming, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So... Deadline says that now they're not just directing, but they're also writing the script for it. To me, that's very good news, and it also confirms that they're still attached, because remember, it's kind of been a while since we've heard anything about Daly and Goldman about this movie. Is it Goldman or Goldstein? I don't know. I'm, I don't feel like pausing again, but you know who I'm referring to, John Francis Daly's uh, writing partner, Jonathan, something with a G. Uh, <laughs> so the Flash seems to be moving forward. And it seems to be, you know, it, it may take a little bit. We also had those comments from Ezra Miller that we reported on earlier this week, which, you know, those might be a little dated, so it's hard to put too much stock in them. But we spoke about them on this week's The Revengers podcast, if you want to go ahead and listen to that. But if you combine this recent stuff from Deadline and Ezra Miller's comments coming to light now, you know, there's definitely some activity the flash is still very much alive so you know fans of the scarlet speedster just hang on tight because it's coming and i think it should be pretty good we got some very good talent involved here and mind you this uh, more i'm fascinated by the way on this whole migration of talent from new line to warner brothers proper because it's, it's really sort of astounding. Because New Line was always kind of like the little pet studio, the little one that does the low-budget movies. You know, Warner Brothers proper did all the big mainline blockbuster stuff, the movies that cost $250 million to make, the ones that are going to be at the center of the pop culture zeitgeist. While New Line is making, you know, the little horror movies and little $2 million movies that are overperforming like crazy, but they're more, you know, they're the smaller movie studio. And what's been fascinating to watch these last two years is how Warner Brothers has basically thrown up the white flag on their old approach of going really huge. And, you know, how, how much of an A-list cast can we put together? How much of a gigantic budget can we cobble together? How many, you know, special effects shots can we squeeze into this to show people what a big deal this is? You know, Warner Brothers at one point was kind of like the studio of excess 
if you look at some of the budgets on some of these DC films and whatnot, you know, they, they were just kind of giving directors blank checks. And it looks like that kind of, it, 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 it reversed on them, you know, rather than it working and making it seem like, wow, Warner Brothers really invests and they really go full out for their movies. There's no half measures here. Instead of that happening, their films have all sort of, you know, I, I shouldn't say all, but, you know, they've had their struggles while New Line has been just turning over profits hand over fist. You know, if you look at like the Conjuring series, if you look at some of these other horror films, it's astounding to see how little they cost and how much they've made and how they've simplified the process in terms of you don't need all these bells and whistles to make a hit movie nowadays. You don't need a huge Oscar winning cast. You don't need the biggest, most intense budget ever. What you need are these simple novel premises that sell themselves that are easy to understand, that your audience can see one teaser for and go, oh, I know exactly what kind of movie that is, and I'm intrigued by it. You know, that's what New Line was doing. That's what Walter Hamada was doing. That's what James Wan did with The Conjuring. That's what a lot of these New Line people got very good at, and now they're all getting promotions. A lot of the old guard at Warner Brothers is disappearing and you keep seeing these new line execs kind of move up the ladder. So now you got Michael Disco going from new line, joining everyone else who's joined, who's moved over to Warner Brothers. And what is one of his first things he's working on the flash. So it's just very interesting to see how Walter Hamada is trying to bring that horror sensibility to the movies, not making them into horror, to superhero movies. You know, and he's not trying to turn them into horror movies, even though I think The Trench, you know, is probably going to be pretty spooky. But th that general concept, that general approach towards filmmaking about how do we keep the budget low, but keep the interest high. Um, I think it's I think it's commendable and I'm very curious to see how it works out. I have a very good feeling that Shazam is going to be the ultimate proof that this approach is working. Because if it's true that Shazam cost under a hundred million bucks to make, and the way it's doing right now with the positive buzz around it, like I think it's going to make a killing at the box office and may end up being the most profitable DC movie ever. That's what I think. That's just what I think. You know, that that, that may still stick with Aquaman because that wasn't too expensive. Apparently, you know, James Wan was able to make that gorgeous movie for only $160 bucks. So maybe that'll still be the standard bearer. But since Shazam was made for even less than that, if it makes numbers remotely close to Aquaman, even if it doesn't quite cross a billion, but if it does what it very well could do, I mean, it's going to be one of the biggest successes Warner Brothers and DC Entertainment has ever had. So, listen, I'm very kind of, I'm very uh, excited to see what happens with Shazam. I'm very intrigued by this whole corporate philosophy that they're doing now with bringing up these new line people who make these little cheap movies that make a lot of money. Yeah, I'm very curious about all of this stuff, so I can't wait to see what happens. But that isn't the only thing that, that, that popped up this week, right? Because we also got word that unfortunately, due to scheduling conflicts, Will Smith's Deadshot will not make it into the Suicide Squad. And that's a shame, because as of a couple weeks ago, he was. You know, it, it, some people saw this news and they were like, well, we never knew he was in it to begin with, so what does it matter? But that's the thing, he was going to be a part of it. You know, from a very early point, I was told 
that not only is Margot Robbie coming back, but so is Deadshot. So is Will Smith. And so I've been like excited to see you guys find that out. You know, the Harley Quinn thing kind of got confirmed a, co you know, a couple weeks ago. We'll, we'll see what happens, you know, when it, when it fully, you know, when something really official comes. It still just kind of came from one report from Forbes, from, from Mr. Mark Hughes. But I think we can all safely assume that we're going to see her. It's what I heard. So with Deadshot being out, you know, it's a bummer. And Will Smith, you know, I, he was one of the big bright spots for Suicide Squad. So that is a blow. That is a big blow. And I'm very intrigued by the fact that it doesn't necessarily sound like this is only for the Suicide Squad. And what I mean is there's also reports that Warner Brothers is considering recasting him. So it's not just a matter of Deadshot, like, sitting this one out. He may still be in the movie, but played by someone else. And that, you know, I kind of hope they don't go that route. I would much rather they just have the, you know, uh, Will Smith's version of this character sit out Suicide Squad because he's off doing something else. And then they could always bring him back later in something else. Because I'm, I'm a big Will Smith fan. And I loved kind of what he did with it. I know it wasn't necessarily the most comic accurate portrayal of Deadshot. But I, I was intrigued to see where else Will Smith would go with that. So what I would much rather them do rather than recast is I'd rather them just bring in a whole new character to kind of fill that spot, you know, be that foil to Margot Robbie, be that hard-nosed sort of, you know, um, you know, just that sort of anti-hero villain type guy who doesn't, you know, who just kind of is a nice counterbalance to Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. And that's why I really, I love the idea that a lot of people have floated out there. And I've said it before, too. Get Joe Manganiello's Deathstroke in there. You know, he's so motivated to play the role. He looked killer in it in that little teaser at the end of Justice League. Everyone loved the teaser that we saw when um, Ben Affleck tweeted the video of Deathstroke from the Justice League set. You know, people want to see Deathstroke. And if you ask Gareth Evans, who had been you know, who had been hired to direct the Deathstroke movie, apparently that film kind of fell through. You know, so all that preparation that Joe Manganiello was doing, because at first he was going to be the main villain in Ben Affleck's The Batman. And then when that fell through, he was gonna get his solo movie. And now even the solo movie seems to have sort of vanished. You know, I just, I feel bad for the guy. And I did really want to see his Deathstroke make some moves here. I wanted to see what he would do with it. You know, Manganello has been around for a while in terms of all these DC projects. People forget that Manganello was even in the running to play Superman for Man of Steel. You know, go look it up. I'm not making it up. He was one of the people that Snyder was supposedly considering before he went with Henry Cavill. Which, by the way, is a very different animal, isn't it? You know, Joe Manganiello has a very different presence. And I've always thought, you know, if he went the Manganiello route, it probably would have looked like Superman the Animated Series done in live action by having that big, huge, you know, broad-shouldered, insanely jacked dude as Superman. But, you know, I'm a softie for, those, for these kinds of stories. Anytime an actor has an opportunity to do something huge, and, I, and we know that they're a big geek for a particular project or for a particular property, you know, anytime 
an actor has that opportunity taken away from them, I, I feel like it hurts me. I feel bad for them. And, you know, not that Joe Manganiello needs my, my sympathy. He's married to Sofia Vergara. He's doing just fine for himself. But I would love to see him get a fair shot at playing Deathstroke. And why not just bring him into Suicide Squad? You know, I, I, I just, that, that's what I would do. I would love to see it. I don't know if they'll do it, but it's totally a viable option. And I wish that they would. Um, there was also a little bit of chatter about Batman. You know, our friend uh, Bill Jet Ramey over at Batman on Film says that, you know, there are at least four villains in the Batman. And, you know, we knew there were going to be multiple. I've been saying forever that there was going to be multiple. But this is the first time we've heard like a real number attached to it. Because remember, Matt Reeves himself referred to a rogues gallery. So when you hear gallery, you know, this is not your standard one or two villains that we're used to seeing in these movies. This implies we're going to be seeing a bunch of them. And so this week, you know, there was a mailbag feature over at Batman on Film. And our boy, you know, Jet said that there's at least four. And I'm inclined to believe him. And... It's just interesting. You know, it, to me, it really, it really sounds to me like Reeves is going to craft a film that kind of calls to mind movie, you know, stories like Hush, stories like The Long Halloween, these ones where while on his way to solving the main case and going after the main villain, he has to encounter and interrogate and tangle with several other villains. And if that's going to be the case here, because by the way, I don't think that there's actually like four villains who Batman has to defeat in this movie. It's just there's four villains that who are going to appear in this movie. And I just love the sound of that. I really, I've always loved the sound of that. You know, even if you love like the Arkham games, you know, they've always, it's kind of part of the Batman storytelling conceit to have Batman have to encounter several villains while on his way to solving the main story, you know, to solving the main case. So if Reeves really is kind of going that route and we're going to have cool scenes where you see that there's like a history, like, oh, wow, he went down to the sewer and he's talking to Solomon Grundy or he's dealing with maybe Killer Croc or, you know, or he has to go interrogate the penguin at the penguin's favorite hideout and he's not going to arrest him or bring him. He's not going to have the cops come get him today because he, you know, he doesn't have any evidence currently, but he knows Penguin's got some dirt on the main culprit. You know, like, I love all those little scenes. And I, to me, that sounds very exciting. And that's instantly where my mind goes when I hear we're going to have this many villains, that we're going to deal with a rogues gallery, that we're looking at at least four of them. To me, that gets my imagination going big time. And I, for one, am very, very excited about that. Um, but if we can kind of circle back now about the Suicide Squad, because it's interesting, you know, and I tweeted about this yesterday. If those of you, if you don't follow me for some reason on the Twitter, if you're not on Twitter, you know, uh, my username is I underscore am underscore MFR. And I tweeted out yesterday about this firing of James Gunn by Disney is not going to age well. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, I have a whole new respect for him that I didn't have even two weeks ago. Because it may have taken three times, but when I saw Guardians of the Galaxy for that third time, two weeks ago, 
I loved the movie. I suddenly saw it totally differently than the first two times I'd seen it. You know, I was sitting there with my seven-year-old daughter and my four-year-old son, and we were the only three people watching the movie, and somehow sitting on the couch with them and kind of experiencing the movie through their eyes, and also kind of just putting away some of my inherent biases and some of my snap judgments from the first time I saw the film. This time I got to watch it almost as if for the first time. And I got to tell you, I was blown away. You know, I was, you know, I was looking at the themes of the movie. I was looking at the cinematography. I was looking at the visuals. I was looking at the hidden meanings of some of the things that happens in there. And I found myself totally emotionally invested, which didn't happen the first two times. The first two times I was like, uh, too many jokes. This is all waka waka. It's all it's all every time I could potentially feel something, they have to go and pull the rug out from under me. I didn't like the whole the, the, the dance off at the end or whatever. Like I was just I was very salty about Guardians. And I was not you know, I was not he willing to hear anybody who was telling me how emotional and how profound it is and how it's the best of all the Marvel films. And while I don't agree that it's the best of all the Marvel films, I still I think that designation still goes to either the Winter Soldier or Avengers uh, Infinity War. While I don't think it's you know the best, I definitely see it now as in the top three. I think it's a gorgeous movie. I understand James Gunn now as a filmmaker much more, and, and a lot of the subtext, a lot of what he had to say about the world, about families, about friendships, about loss, about togetherness, about regrets. I mean, there's a lot in there that just totally grabbed me by the throat this time, and it made me realize, you know what? James Gunn actually is a big-time filmmaker, and I wasn't willing to sort of see that before. Um... And by the way, I kind of want to circle back to this a little later. If I, re if I can remember, uh, I want to discuss a little bit about the unfortunate way that I've viewed Marvel films for the last few years because of the fact that I'm a reporter and a blogger. I want to explain that in a second because I, I realize I've been a little unfair and I want to explain why. And I kind of want you to understand kind of where I'm coming from here. But in terms of just the point I'm trying to make right now, about Gunn being a major filmmaker. This scandal that, that got him fired from Disney is already kind of disappearing from his name. You know, it's already, it's been several months. No one's really talking about it anymore. And really, at its heart, at its core, the, 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 the case against Gunn is very weak. At the most, all we can really accuse him of is finding gross stuff funny. That even if that's all true, and even if he's, you know, I mean, it is all true. We know that he tweeted a bunch of inappropriate things and a lot of really unfortunate blue humor, a lot of really terrible, off-color, quote-unquote, provocative jokes he made a long time ago. Listen, that's all out there. That's all on the record. And even if he attended some kind of skeevy-looking, you know, dress-up party with his friends, and listen, I'm not here to judge because I don't know what him and his friend's sense of humor is. I don't know, you know, as far as we know, there was no criminal activity. It was just they have an odd sense of humor. You know, all we, all we really have against James Gunn is that he may have a really warped, really dark, 
really blue, really crass sense of humor. But is that really enough to slam away a guy's entire career or to stop supporting his works just because he likes you? He finds certain things funny or humorous that we don't. You know, in the grand scheme of things, with all the other scandals happening around the world, with all the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, with all the stuff going on in the political sphere, with all the actual scandals, when you look at what happened with James Gunn, it's like, wait a minute. We have all these actual predators and abusers and monsters out there in the world. Why were we mad about some crappy jokes last year? You know what I mean? Like, it's going, it's not going to age well. And especially if in 2021, when the Suicide Squad comes out, if that movie is excellent, which, you know, why, why wouldn't it be? You know, James Gunn is a talented director and writer. And granted, I didn't love Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And tonight, actually, I'm going to give that film a second chance. Me, my daughter, and my son are going to sit right here on this couch next to me. And we're going to watch Guardians 2. So maybe I'll have a 180 on that movie, too. But, you know, Gunn... He's got the goods. He knows how to write. He knows how to shoot. His movies are anything but generic. Yes, sometimes they're a little too jokey, and I wish he took things a little more seriously, but this is a serious filmmaker here. So when The Suicide Squad comes out, if it's great, and he strikes gold again with another one of these movies about a quirky cast... And he's able to do, you know, and really kind of like without the without any handcuffs on, craft a phenomenal Suicide Squad movie. Do you think anyone's going to remember in 2021 that they were mad at him for two weeks in 2018 over some old tweets? You know what I mean? Assuming that he's able to kind of keep a low profile, not get himself into any trouble, that the allegations against him don't you know, don't go any further than what they've been, where it's literally just about some jokes. This whole chapter is going to look like a big joke. This whole chapter is going to, you know, people are going to look at Disney like, wow, you fired this big time filmmaker who just relaunched a successful franchise for your competitor, for Warner Brothers, for DC Entertainment. You know, it's, it's just, it, 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 it fascinates me. And I cannot wait to see what you know how that all plays out. I want to see what happens in 2021 if the Suicide Squad comes out and is beloved and he's kept his name out of the negative headlines for three years, as he has. By the way, he's disappeared since July or August. He's been on best behavior ever since July or August. So the countdown already began several months ago. So if he's able to keep this going now, and when the Suicide Squad comes out, he's just, you know, he's scandal-free at that point. Warner Brothers is going to lock him up big time. He's going to make Suicide Squad sequels or spinoffs, or at the very least, he's going to be a golden child for Warner Brothers. Aren't we all going to look at Disney and go, wow, you really blew it over some jokes, over, you know, his biggest offense was that he liked some things, you know, he found some things funny that a lot of other people don't. Was it really worth discarding this big, you know, this major filmmaker? You know, I just, I, I really think that things are gonna play out that way in a couple of years time. So I'm very intrigued by that. And if you wanna hear what, uh, you know, if I have any updated thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, be sure to follow me over on the Twitter because I'm gonna watch it again tonight. Um, and now while we're talking Guardians, 
And while we're talking James Gunn, you know, there's another interesting thing going on. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on. But with the Fox-Disney merger, there are a lot of folks out there, reporters, bloggers, influencers, who they seem to take like an inordinate amount of joy in debunking your fan theories. You know, because a lot of fans, listen, it, you're a fan. You don't owe anybody anything. So if you go on Twitter and you tweet how awesome it would be if Silver Surfer showed up in Avengers Endgame, that's your right to do so. It may be an unrealistic expectation, but it may be something you want. And there are people out there who will go out of their way to go, God, this person's a clown. Oh, they're ignoring all the obvious signs. Oh, Marvel, I can't do that even if they wanted to. Yada, 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 the deal hasn't gone through. And it's like, listen, yes, that may be true, but why is this your hill to die on? <laughs> why is your hill to die on? I don't like it when fans use their imaginations to think of cool possibilities. You know, I find that sort of thing intriguing uh, to say the least. And specifically when it comes to this, it's a really stupid hill to die on. Because what all these people are overlooking is that, yes, okay, the the merger is not official, even though, by the way, it may be as it may be official as soon as March 8th, which is seven days away, mind you. But yes, okay, the 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 deal may not be official or legal or passed. But that is not a prerequisite for them to make other creative decisions beforehand. People forget that. Conveniently, they forget that when they want to yell at you about, why would you think a Fantastic Four or a mutant could pop up in Avengers Endgame? Why would you think they would do that? You're so stupid. Um, guys, Fox and Marvel Studios have an existing relationship. They've already demonstrated that all it takes is a phone call from one to the other to work out compromises. And if they know that a deal is on the horizon and it's all just a mere formality, then there's absolutely no reason that at some point during the post-production for Avengers Endgame, Kevin Feige or the Russos or whoever is in charge of these decisions couldn't have contacted Simon Kinberg or Fox and said, hey, listen, we won't impede on Dark Phoenix at all, but since this deal is going through, what you know, we're thinking we'd love to drop a reference to this character as a post credit in, a, in Endgame. Is that cool with you? What can we give you in return? I know that may sound like a silly, sort of casual way to look at things, but it's already happened. Because in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, if you recall, James Gunn got permission to use a character from the Fantastic Four mythology, the Watcher, and put them into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Or what about the biggest example of all, Quicksilver? What happened with Quicksilver? Quicksilver appeared in both Days of Future Past and Avengers Age of Ultron. And all they had to do was, you know, they spoke about it, they decided what was off limits, they worked out you know, how they were going to approach it in a way so they didn't step on each other's toes. But again, they were able to make these deals easily because there's a working relationship there. I still remember... When Simon Kinberg came on my first podcast, the one I was a part of with Latino Review, the Lost Fanboys podcast, Simon Kinberg came on shortly after Deadpool came out. And what he had to tell us was pretty interesting. You know, he, he really showed that there's a relationship, that it's not like 
Fox is against Marvel Studios and Marvel Studios is against Fox, there is an open line of communication there. And there was even that, you know, around the time the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 came out, you know, I was doing freelance work for the Splash Report. And at the time, I helped Kelvin cover a scoop where, you know, one of our sources had told us that the relationship between Fox and Marvel over the years had really thawed and that things, you know, that there was give and take. And that's how they were able to get the Watcher, I think it's his name, Watcher into Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And then we wrote a story about the fact that, like, you know, in theory, then, if they're bringing in the Watcher and they now have the, you know, the okay to tap into some of that Final Fantasy stuff, Final Fantasy, <laughs> Fantastic Four, sorry, wrong FF. Uh, if Marvel Studios really does have permission or they were able to get permission to tap into some Fantastic Four stuff, even going back to 2017's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, then what's to stop them? from having made other deals between now and then for things to put into Endgame or for things to sneak into Captain Marvel or for things to whatever. You know what I mean? That's why it's it's always been peculiar for me to see other reporters and other influencers and other podcast hosts and other, you know, other people who are technically peers or colleagues of mine. Whenever I see them come down on other fans and be snide and snarky and they quote tweet you as if it's a joke that any of these Fantastic Four things can get teased in Endgame. That, you know, it, it just, it rubs me the wrong way because what do, they, what do they really know? And what are they overlooking? They're overlooking an established precedent where Marvel Studios and Fox are already trading characters back and forth. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. So all this stuff about, well, the deal's not legal yet, that doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter. Now, with that said, I still consider it unlikely that we'll see any teases in Endgame or Captain Marvel. You know, they, they probably are, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and being on their best behavior about not, you know potentially messing with that deal, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Fox and Marvel have already shown us that they're willing to do some fun stuff and collaborate with each other when it's mutually beneficial. So just keep that in mind as we go forward here with all this Fox Disney stuff. I don't know if they're going to tease anything sooner than we're expecting, but it's actually not completely far-fetched that they might. All right? Especially when you consider, by the way, that like that post credit scene that they put at the end of Avengers, the infamous shawarma scene. You got to remember, they filmed that like two weeks before the movie came out. Two weeks before the movie came out. They did that. I, I think I, I don't remember now, but I think the story was like Whedon in, you know, spoke to the cast at the L.A. premiere. At the, you know, basically what, it, what was considered the world premiere for the Avengers. And after that premiere, they went into the studio and they recorded the shawarma sequence. So these little teases and post-credit little add-ons can come together at the very, very last second. And if that Fox Disney deal really is about to clear in a week's time, Avengers Endgame doesn't come out till April 26th. There's more than enough time to just throw in a little something, a little vague, a little crumb to the, you know, to your fans to get them excited for what's to come. You know, 
a silhouette of Galactus. You know, it's just, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen. And I'm not here to tell you that it will. I definitely haven't heard that it will. What I just said was not a scoop. It was not bochinche. But it was just letting you know, like, these kinds of things are a possibility. And now, you know, while we're kind of in this space, right? We're kind of in this space where we're talking about Fox and Marvel and all that stuff and X-Men, I'd be remiss if I did not address the trailer that we got two nights ago for X-Men Dark Phoenix, or should I just say Dark Phoenix, since I guess they're not even really allowed to emphasize the X-Men stuff, which again, again, shows you that Fox and Marvel Studios have a little bit of a working relationship, because why would they take X-Men out of the title unless perhaps it was like a favor? You know what I mean? Because Marvel Studios kind of knows that they've got plans for the X-Men and they probably asked Kinberg, hey, can we just scrub the X-Men out of the title and just make this feel like it's its own thing? You know, this, like that's just another perfect area. There's been no other mainline X-Men movie that ever didn't have X-Men in the title. Yet X-Men, X-2, X-3, Last Stand, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men First Class, I'm out of order, but you know, X-Men Apocalypse, there's always X-Men in there, and this is clearly a sequel to all of those, and it doesn't have X-Men in the title. Like, that happened, that clearly happened, because the two sides are already doing favors for each other. Come on, people, wake up. Again, I'm not telling you that there's going to be some sort of crossover or a tease anytime soon, but I'm just illustrating a point that it is not far-fetched for them to have made a deal. But anyway, um, I just I keep circling back to that because it just astounds me that people want to just really just berate you for thinking that they might have worked something out before the deal is official, you know, the, the before the merger is approved by all the international entities that it has to clear. Um, but since we're talking Dark Phoenix, okay, so they released a trailer this week, and I think they released the wrong one. <laughs> because here's the thing, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it especially more the second time. But guys, if you have not seen the international trailer, you know, trailer two, the international version of it, for some reason it's only on Vimeo, um, it is vastly superior to the domestic trailer we were given. Uh, so I strongly recommend you seek that out. Just Google, you know, if you don't, I'm going to try to remember to put a link to it in the write-up for this episode, but I'm probably going to forget because I always do. Um, <laughs> seek it out. Just Google Dark Phoenix International Trailer and find the one that went up yesterday. It's a vastly superior trailer. And, you know, it's interesting because when I first saw it, when I first saw it, Mind you, I wasn't in the best setting to watch the trailer. I was in a bar where my buddy was 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 making drinks for me. And I just pulled it out and I watched it on my phone. And I was able to keep the volume all the way up because the bar was virtually empty. But, you know, there was still the radio playing and it was still, you know, 1130 at night and I'm exhausted. Actually, I think it dropped even later than that. It came at like 1230 at night at the end of a long day. So I watched it on this tiny little screen in a bar with the radio playing. And the first time I watched it, I remember it felt kind of like, eh. You know, it felt strange to me, primarily because we know that this, for all intents and purposes, is the end of this version of the X-Men. 
And that's part of what I find epic about this movie. That's why I really enjoyed the first trailer. Where, you know, because they, they, they lean into the fact that this is the end. One of the first things you hear in the trailer is the, the singer and the song used, that they use for the trailer singing, This is the End. And I kind of liked that they were leaning into that, the finality of all of this. It made it that much more serious. It makes the stakes that much more, you know, powerful. Because you got to imagine they're not going to end on something that's getting you excited for the future. They're probably going to end with some with something fairly momentous because there's not going to be a follow-up to this movie. So with that in mind, I'm watching the trailer the other night and it just felt weird to me. To be seeing this franchise, it's been around for almost 20 years, go off into the sunset without the people who made the franchise. You know, without Patrick Stewart, without Ian McKellen, without Hugh Jackman, without James Marsden or Famke Johansson or, or you know, um, Holly Berry. You know, it, it, it felt weird to watch this and be as emotionally invested because it focuses on all the babies. You know, it focuses on Sophie Turner's Jean Grey, and it focuses on Ty Sheridan's Scott Summers, and the younger versions. And listen, I love Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy, don't get me wrong. But it focuses on all these younger versions of the characters, and especially when it comes to Jean Grey and Nightcrawler and uh, Cyclops. You know, we just met these versions of these characters one movie ago in X-Men Apocalypse. And that movie was not exactly a great time, you know? So I, I don't feel any investment in these versions of the characters yet. In theory, if the franchise wasn't going anywhere, you know, then, you know, we would have had a few movies to watch these versions of these characters develop. And then we would bond ourselves to them then now it's like oh, okay now i you know now you've ty sheridan you know now you've really made cyclops your own and now you're the cyclops for this generation for example you know they in theory had this merger not come into play we would have had a lot of time to get to know these characters and see their arcs and become invested in them but watching this trailer for dark phoenix knowing that this is the end and these are still just versions of these characters that I don't really know yet. I don't really, I'm not, I have no skin in the game for. It made watching the trailer kind of hollow. You know, it, it did. But the next day I watched it again in much more prime settings. You know, I sat alone in my quiet apartment. I dimmed all the lights. I went to full screen with the volume at full blare. And I watched the trailer again. And that time I was definitely sold. But never have I been more sold for Dark Phoenix than with the international trailer. You guys got to see international trailer too. It's just a much better thing. Listen, I know that, you know, there, there's all those murmurs. We've all heard the same things that, oh, you know, it's been delayed a bunch of times. There was a lot of reshoots. It didn't do great in the test screenings. So there's a lot of people who are just all too happy to put their pom-poms on and celebrate the death of this franchise and who want to mock and point and laugh at Dark Phoenix. And look, that's their prerogative. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, it doesn't really affect me one way or the other. I'm very excited for it. But, you know, I know that, you know, there there's reasons to be concerned and I'm not ignoring those. But right now I'm just thinking bigger. I'm thinking bigger than just the buzz on this specific movie. I'm thinking about 
how monumental this franchise has been. I'm thinking about all the different rides it's taken me on over the course of the last 19 years. I, 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 I'm, I'm focusing on the fact that the X-Men franchise was is kind of the granddaddy of them all. Because yes, while Blade definitely did, you know, it, it, it did something good to kind of help kick off the comic book movie boom. It wasn't really till X-Men came into play, which then sort of set the stage for Sam Raimi's Super, uh, Superman, Spider-Man two years later. You know, it wasn't until X-Men came out that really the modern Hollywood superhero boom really kind of began in earnest. You know, and they were the first ones to start doing the like the, the shared universe, the spin-off idea, the now, okay, we've done the team-ups, now let's do the solo, you know, they, they have the X-Men Origins Wolverine and the standalone Wolverine movies, and they wanted, you know, they have the Deadpool stuff. They want to do the same with Gambit, even though now it looks like they're not gonna have a chance to. But you know, a lot of the stuff that we love and that we've come to expect from these comic book movie franchises. Fox has been kind of at the forefront. Granted, their delivery has been all over the place. You know, the the quality control, the, the sorry, the quality control uh, has left a little to be desired. Because, you know, a lot of times, like, here's a great movie followed by a horrible movie. Here's an okay movie followed up by a, what was this movie? So, you know, granted, I know that it's been a bumpy ride being a fan of Fox's X-Men movies, but I still have the utmost respect for what they were able to accomplish, for what they meant to the Hollywood, you know, superhero boom of the last 15, 20 years. And for me, it's important to just let's, let's wish them well. I'm rooting for this movie. I don't understand how you could root against it, but you know, that's, that, that, that is, that's somebody else's problem. It's not mine. Um, now, the thing I wanted to circle back to about the way I've, I feel like I've been a little harsh on, on Marvel properties over the years, um, you know, how do I put this? Something I'm trying to process now and I'm trying to reverse now is I used to have a fear of saying nice things about Marvel in public. And this is gonna sound silly, and listen, and I don't want anyone's sympathy. This is me just being an oversensitive baby. This is me being just like trying to be a people pleaser, which is one of my character flaws. I really want people to like me and understand me. And, you know, I, I wanna make everybody happy. And sometimes it's to my detriment. In fact, a lot of the times it is. But being a blogger, the second you say that you love a Marvel film or that you enjoyed something Marvel, there is a whole subset of the online fandom that will now use that praise for Marvel as a way to discredit any and all comments you have about DC. I know this sounds like it's so silly to, you know, Especially because for me, I'm, I don't believe in the whole Marvel versus DC thing. I think it's such a silly rivalry. And I really, you know, I enjoy stuff from both studios. And I want everyone to, to succeed. You know, a couple episodes ago, I did a whole thing about trying to give Marvel its due. Because, listen, it may not be my kind of movie franchise. may not be what exactly gets me going. But I respect what they've done. And I've enjoyed more or less everything they've put out. There's only one movie of theirs where I was like, 
I want those two hours back, and that was Thor 2, and it is what it is. But overall, through 20-some-odd movies, Marvel has made me pretty happy as a fan. When I go, I rarely want my money back. I always had at least a pretty good time. But unfortunately, since I have been a DC fan who is known for at times being critical of DC, since I didn't really, you know, I wasn't over the moon about Man of Steel, and I had reservations about Batman v Superman, and I had reservations about Suicide Squad. It made it so that the only way people would take my opinion seriously, it seemed, was if I didn't also praise Marvel, because that seemed to be the equation that puts you on the hate list. If someone could find where you've praised Marvel but you've also critiqued DC, now you get labeled as someone who's getting paid off by Marvel Studios and you're part of the corporate conspiracy to prop up Marvel and to be part, you know, there's all this for years there. While I was at Latino Review, we would deal with this stuff in the comments where we couldn't say a bad word about DC without people going, oh, Marvel, you, you've been bought by Marvel and people coming at me. So I noticed that I sort of started making the subconscious decision to de-emphasize any joy I got from a Marvel movie and either not talk about it or only really focus on the bad things because I wanted people to take my DC critiques seriously because my DC critiques mean a lot more to me than my Marvel ones. I have a lot more skin in the game when it comes to DC because of my inherent love of Superman and Batman Green Lantern and Wonder Woman. You know, I love the DC universe. You know, that they're my first love. But I'm also harder on them because I expect more from them. I know what these characters can be. To me, you know, I know what I love about the DC universe. So I want to be able to give them a hard time from time to time. So for a while there, I felt like I could purchase the ability to be hard on DC if I'm not also praising Marvel at the same time. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't doing it deliberately, but I noticed I was doing that in my writing style, in the way I would speak of the two brands. I found myself sort of throwing shade at Marvel a lot. And it was more so, so DC fans would take my DC, you know, commentary seriously. And so I just kind of want to apologize for that because it's, you know, I feel like I've been unfair to the MCU. I've been unfair to fans of mine or supporters of mine who are also, you know, huge MCU people. I, I, I've not given them a fair shake out of fear and out of ulterior motives, not because I don't think that they're doing commendable things over there, because I really think they are. And I'm very excited, by the way, about the Eternals and all the stuff that they're working on post-Endgame. So moving forward, I'm going to try to turn a new leaf to a certain extent and just be more even-handed. I no longer, and this is good news, I no longer care about people accusing me of me uh, of being a Marvel shill because by now I think I've more than proven where my heart goes. You know, I've, I've more than proven what I actually love and what I actually think of these brands and how silly the rivalry is and how I want both to do well and how I'm totally fine if you know, Marvel, if the Marvel Cinematic Universe is like corporate, overproduced, safe, classic rock, and DC is young and crazy and punk rock rebellious. 
I'm cool with that. I want both brands to do well. Um, so I'm just going to try to make sure that I, 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 I display that properly. Because I, I, as I look back on some of my commentary, I do feel that I unfortunately was subconsciously throwing all kinds of digs at Marvel that had nothing really to do with Marvel's output and more to do with me just making sure that my DC opinions were heard. You know, I, I know it probably sounds silly and, you know, I just, I wanted to acknowledge that. And uh, this is all true. Um, I, I want to touch on another interesting possibility that popped up this week. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's not anything to get too excited about because it's still just whispers. It's still just kind of stuff that's kind of being spoken of through back channels. But J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot Productions is on the auction block right now because their exclusive deal with Paramount is set to expire pretty soon. So a lot of studios now are trying to make a play to get in on Bad Robot, to get in on J.J. Abrams, get the right of first refusal and be able to kind of ride that J.J. Abrams, you know, gravy train off to prosperity. And the, the rumors this week are that Warner Brothers are now the front runner for Bad Robot. So with that in mind, you know, last night on Twitter, a few of us were having some fun with this idea. You know, what would it be like to have a filmmaker like J.J. Abrams in the Warner Brothers fold? What would it be like to ask J.J. Abrams to perhaps make a DC movie? Because remember, he was, you know, he had once written Superman Flyby. He was very much involved with the attempts in the early 2000s to reboot Superman. And you could find his script out there somewhere. I don't recommend it because I've heard it's, you know, I've heard some of the departures he took and... I know that there's a lot of stigmas against Superman flyby, but the point remains, Abrams has an interest in this stuff. And we know he likes genre film, and we know that he likes to sort of reboot classic properties with a fresh coat of paint while still celebrating what made them beloved properties. So if we could get Abrams to make a, like a Superman movie, I think my head would fall off. <laughs> you know, a bunch of you are saying like, oh, what about Green Lantern Corps? And I get it. But to me, that's kind of an obvious choice. Because I get it. You want, you, you're thinking Green Lantern Corps because of all of his, his success in outer space. You know, because he had success with uh, Episode 7, The Force Awakens. Because he had success rebooting Star Trek. So a lot of you are thinking about J.J. Abrams in space. So you want to do Green Lantern Corps. For me personally, since I do see him emerging and developing into his generation's Spielberg, so to speak, not that I think he'll ever be necessarily as good because I don't think anyone can be as good as Steven Spielberg, but I think he's definitely got some of those Spielbergian qualities and he definitely has, he understands how to crack a story in a way that appeals to established fans but brings in new ones which is very important if you're trying to reboot or relaunch a beloved IP, like a Superman or like, you know, a Justice League or whatever. So Abrams has already shown that he can do that. And people kind of like, you know, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for it. Because yes, okay, his first Mission Impossible movie, which was Mission Impossible 3, didn't do so hot. But remember, that wasn't really because of the movie. That's actually one of my favorite Mission Impossible movies. It's right up there. It's in like the top two for me. I don't know if it's number one, but it's up there. 
it didn't do well, but that wasn't because of Abrams. Remember, that came out immediately following Tom Cruise's sort of fall from grace. Remember all the weird stuff with Katie Holmes and jumping on Oprah's couch and all the Scientology stuff? You know, the, 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 the Tom Cruise brand got very sort of tainted, became very sort of toxic at some point there, you know, 15 or so years ago. And all of a sudden, in the wake of that, that's when Mission Impossible 3 came out. So the film didn't do so hot, but it was a very good movie. But that doesn't change the fact that Abrams stuck around and Bad Robot has been at the, you know, has been producing Mission Impossible ever since. And if you look at what's happened since then, you look at the resurgence through Ghost Protocol. If you look at what you know, the, how well Rogue Nation did, if you look at how much everyone loved last year's Mission Impossible Fallout and the excitement now for the future, a lot of that has to do with Bad Robot. A lot of that has to do with J.J. Abrams. A lot of it is sort of picking up on what he established in Mission Impossible 3, even if Mission Impossible 3 itself was not the biggest hit. So his fingerprints are on the relaunch, the successful relaunch of the Mission Impossible franchise. His fingerprints are also on the successful reboot of Star Trek in 2009. And look, I know now, you know, it's, it's, it's viewed very sort of polarizing now, and there are people who don't really like where he took Star Trek, and there's a lot of like sort of, you know, back and forth hostility between fans of the current films and fans of the vintage Star Wars and you know, even today, I was on Twitter and I was looking at what some you know major Star Trek fans had to say about the new Star Trek films. And I you know I I know that he's been far from a universally loved figure in the Star Trek fandom, but you can't argue that the first Star Trek was not a big hit, and that it didn't suddenly make Star Trek very accessible and available to a lot of fans who had never really paid attention in the past, like myself included. You know, I saw that movie, I want to say three, at least two times, but maybe three times in theaters. And that's huge, because I didn't watch any Star Trek anything before that. So Abrams, his fingerprints are on the successful relaunch of Mission Impossible. They're on the successful relaunch of Star Trek, even though that, you know, right now things are kind of in limbo, but at least the relaunch was sound. Then obviously the big one, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. That's another one. That's another time where Abrams was given a beloved IP by a studio and said, can you make fans love this again? And he said, okay. And he did it. You know, and that's huge. Because right now, in this current landscape, where these kinds of properties are exactly what studios dream of having, these four-quadrant films that are going to perform well at the box office, they're going to sell Happy Meals, they're going to sell tie-in books and video games and action figures, people are going to buy the backpacks and the hats and the t-shirts. You know, Hollywood is all about these kinds of properties. And J.J. Abrams basically is just knocking them down one by one. You want Mission Impossible to be a hit? Bam, it's a hit again. You want Star Trek to be a hit? Bam, it's a hit again. You want Star Wars back, even though the prequels left people very upset? Fine, I'm going to give you an episode 7 that's going to make $2.2 billion and make everyone forget about the prequels. So Abrams kind of has the Midas touch right now. And I know that, you know, whatever, there's, some of you may roll your eyes at that. But 
Abrams has got the goods. So I, for one, would love to see what he does with a Superman nowadays, knowing what he knows now and understanding the current pop culture landscape the way he does. I would love to see what he did with a Superman movie. So right now, if Bad Robot does indeed get him, that would be, you know, that, that would be the first thing I'd want him to do. I'd want DC to call him in for a meeting. I want to get J.J. Abrams, Walter Hamada into a room together to talk Superman. That would be my dream right now. You know, and, and like I said over on the Twitter, you know, there are other directors who are like my dream gets as well. But I think Abrams is the one who's like realistic if they do actually get Bad Robot. He's the most realistic choice, I would say, because, you know, the other names, you know, like I'd love to get Alfonso Cuaron, who just had, you know, an awesome night at the Oscars. I'd love to get Brad Bird, who I've been talking about for a Superman movie for at least two years. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie, obviously, after all of last year's rumbles, you know, I'd love to see what he did with a Superman movie. But I got to tell you, if they get Bad Robot, J.J. Abrams is my guy. And what's really cool about that, too, if they do get it, is you got to know. Abrams and Matt Reeves have an established history together. They've produced television together before. They come from a similar sort of collective. They're collaborators. They worked on Cloverfield together. I believe they worked on Alias together and Felicity. You know, they, they, they come from a similar nucleus of talent. Drew Goddard, I think, comes from that world too, if I'm not mistaken. I think Goddard is more on the Whedon end of things. It's funny, sometimes I actually confuse uh, Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams. I don't know if anyone else does that, but I do, because they're both these geek TV producers who have gone to Hollywood and made some huge movies with some huge properties. I, I still, to this day, confuse them. So I'm sorry about the Drew Goddard thing. I think he's more of a Whedon disciple than an Abrams disciple. But... I bring all this up because you've got Reeves making the Batman and that's, you know, him and Abrams, they're boys and they know how to, you know, that he Reeves already also has his own little track record now of taking things that are old and making them new and exciting again. Cause remember Reeves rose to prominence in the film world with Cloverfield, which in and of itself was a reinvention of the Godzilla type movie of the Kaiju type movie. You know, it was, it was a found footage Godzilla movie that really was for its time, a really big success. It was a big hit. It was made for a little money and it made a ton of profit. And you know, Cloverfield is still an entity now because of what Reeves was able to do with that. So he reinvented the Kaiju, you know, uh, genre through that. Then Obviously, with the with the Planet of the Apes films, those last two, you know, he took this beloved, you know, property and he made some really dynamite movies out of it that were really loved and embraced by the fans. So Reeves is not far behind, as far as I can tell, in terms of being able to take classic properties and make them new and exciting again. So if you have Reeves there working on Batman and you got Abrams there working on Superman, I mean... Just think about that and try not to get excited about our world's finest. And not about the two of them being in a movie together, but about the hands they would be in, about the people who were hired to be the shepherds of their cinematic futures. How confident would you feel knowing that Reeves is taking care of Batman, Abrams is taking care of Superman, and now let's just see what happens with these characters over the next few years. Like that would be, I mean, you got to pinch me. You really got to pinch me if anything like that happens. And look, Chase, 
Listener Chase Smith, I know you want to hear what I'd love for Abrams to do with Superman. You asked me to talk a little bit more about my pitch for what my perfect Superman movie would be. But unfortunately, I'm not going to have time to get to that today. We're already running a little longer than I expected. I got some other things I must tend to. So we're going to stick a pin in that. We're going to return to Superman next week because I do have some fairly solid ideas to flesh out for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I do have some Superman stuff I'd love to share, but for the time being, with everything that we had to cover today, there's just not a time, there's, there's not enough time for me to go long form on that. So rather than give you a gimped version, we're going to save it for episode 90. All right. Um, and that's it, folks. So I hope you enjoyed episode 89 of the Fanboy Podcast. If you have not yet, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. I believe you can even go on iTunes and find the show that way, however you want to do it. But keep the reviews coming in because they really help the show grow. The show is really, you know, it's, 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 this has been the best year so far for this show. And I'm so excited for where we're headed. So just thanks to everyone who's been writing your reviews, for everyone who's been checking out the show and telling your friends about it and retweeting about it and kind of passing along the word. Thank you. Because... There's definitely, you know, 2019 is shaping up to be one of the most epic years ever for yours truly and Revenge of the Fans and the Fanboy Podcast, and that's all because of you. So thank you. I'm looking forward to catching up with you again next week. Remember, I have The Revengers. It comes out every Tuesday with myself, Vanessa Lee Bontea, and Brett Thomas Miro. We got a bunch of goodies over on Patreon right now, so you may want to visit and, and consider donating to the cause. And also, I got to throw out a happy birthday shout out to a very important DC filmmaker. And that, of course, is Zack Snyder. So I guess it's almost very fitting that it looks like Batman v Superman is winning the poll on Patreon right now for what our next audio commentary could be because it's Snyder's birthday. So uh, happy birthday, Mr. Snyder. And uh, that's it, everyone. Until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.